everyone. It's your favorite polygamy podcaster and public historian, Lindsay Hanson Park here, thanking you for listening to the Year of Polygamy podcast and for supporting the podcast. This series might be coming to a close soon, but I have some amazing projects coming up that will ensure quality educational listening for years to come. If you haven't supported the podcast yet, please consider a donation at yearofpolygamy.com or become a monthly subscriber. Years after the series ends, we hope to maintain this project and keep the content alive and accessible, and your donation will go directly to support those goals. Please consider a donation and consider sharing this podcast with friends or family. The history of Mormon polygamy is pervasive and affects us more than we know. It's important, so important that we continue the conversations had before us and keep the discussion going. Thanks again for being part of that, and thanks for listening. back to another episode of the Feminist Mormon Housewives podcast. I'm your host, Lindsay, bringing you one of our final episodes in the Year of Polygamy series, where we try to understand the practice of Mormon plural marriage. I know some of you are sad to see it go. Maybe we can revisit it again later after some time has passed and everyone has digested this information. If you don't get your fill, you can see me at Sunstone. Come hear me present uh, on Thursday afternoon. I'm going to have a panel of some former Mormon fundamentalists and some others, including CJ and the blogger, Courtney Hendricks, who is going to talk about, we're going to talk about the fundamentalist Mormon mind and the difference between being a Mormon fundamentalist and actually having fundamentalist thinking and using religion in the name of God to harm others. So you can come check that out. I would encourage you, even if you're out of state, Mark it on your calendars, make it work, come to Sunstone, you won't regret it. So go to sunstone.org and register. It's uh, July 29th through August 1st. There's going to be a mental health conference on July 29th. And then the Thursday, Friday, and Saturday is going to be the Sunstone conference. So everybody come on out. It's going to be a lot of great fun. John DeLynn's going to be there, Kate Kelly, D. Michael Quinn, Fatima Saleh, Joanna Brooks, all of these amazing people. So make sure to mark your calendars for that. And if you are in Salt Lake and want to come to the last recording, episode 100, we're going to be at Written Vision at the end of June at 7 o'clock Written Vision in Provo on June 27th, recording this live. So those are the announcements. And if you're listening after all of this has passed, which will likely be most of you, uh, make sure you come out to Sunstone every year. I'll usually be there. So now we just did two episodes about messy Mormon polygamy. So if you have heard those two episodes, you're good to go. If you have not heard those, I would I would encourage you to go back to the la- the previous two episodes. Before we start with this episode, I just want to give a warning that I am going to be talking about some sacred temple rites and the sacred temple garment. I've really struggled with how much to include. I am an endowed member. And for those who don't know, outsiders that don't know, Mormons take an oath to never reveal things talked about in the temple. So the things I am going to talk about are things that are already published online widely known, um, been published in books. So uh, I'm just going to be reporting from that. There is, There will be a discussion of the temple in this podcast. I also want to tell you that this subject is so broad. I know I've been saying that a lot, but 
there are so many aspects to this to this history that I feel like I'm just barely scraping at. And I really hope that someday a really great scholar or historian is going to dig deep into this stuff and be able to tie these threads together far better than I've been able to do. With that, let's get into talking more about messy Mormon polygamy. In the last two episodes, we talked about sort of how the general church leadership, contemporary modern day church leaders are tied to polygamy and how it's sort of the leaders that we have now in 2015 are sort of the last generation of people that were directly connected with polygamy. That means, you know, they had polygamous parents, or they had polygamous siblings, or had polygamous grandparents, or dealt with a lot of the polygamy crossover, or knew the apostles that defected and started Mormon fundamentalism. Or, you know, something even as small as Gordon B. Hinckley went to the same high school as Rulon Jeffs, and Rulon Jeffs served with Cleon Skousen on a mission. They were mission companions, those kind of connections. So we're dealing with a generation that is sort of the last, as far as I am aware, at least, of having direct connections. As new generations move into church leadership, I think the connections are going to be harder to find. However, that does not mean that the LDS church is not a polygamous church. I have argued that uh, polygamy is still very pervasive in the doctrine, policy, culture, psyche of all Latter-day Saints. And I want to I want to sort of if if I've done one thing on this podcast, I've talked about how similar the LDS church is to Mormon fundamentalists. We always think that we're different. We have a shared history, we have a shared religion, we have a shared origin story. And in many ways, we still share a lot of the same things. And it's so interesting because the more that I dig, the more that I find out. I just found out a situation about a new group up in Canada that I'd never heard of before. Um, the group is called the Fatherland, the Fatherland group up in Quebec, Canada. And uh, it's just so interesting to see how the legacy of Joseph Smith has sort of sprouted into the, all this unusual sort of fruit. And it's just interesting to see that. But I, I want to talk about a lot about the Doctrine and Covenants today, because a lot of Mormon theology that sort of separates us from Nauvoo Mormonism, those who broke off maybe the RLDS Community of Christ Church, has to do with our later passages in, in the Doctrine and Covenants. Uh, the Community of Christ still adds to their DNC. They continue to add. And um, some of their sections split off and are different than ours. One of the sections that they do not have is Doctrine and Covenants 132. And of course, LDS Mormons and Mormon fundamentalists keep DNC 132. And I argue that this is the reason why DNC 132 is why the Community of Christ, the RLDS Church, looks so wildly different from Mormons and Mormon fundamentalists, and that Mormon fundamentalists and the LDS Church are far more similar to each other than they are to the RLDS Community of Christ Church who are more like, you know, mainstream Christians. So, and I argue that it's DNC 132 that is really one of the key aspects to those differences. Mormon fundamentalists have this belief. Now, again, Mormon fundamentalism is big and broad, and there's all of these different groups that believe different things. But one of the sort of core doctrines of some groups that is sort of maybe folk doctrine in other groups is this idea of the celestial kingdom being the highest degree of glory. So this is an LDS doctrine too. We have three kingdoms of glory, celestial, terrestrial, telestial kingdom. Depending on what group you belong to will depend on how 
this doctrine sort of makes it sense into the practice. I'm going to explain it from LDS.org for those who maybe aren't LDS and or Mormon or have no background with this. So LDS.org explains the kingdoms of glory in the following way. It says, quote, Through the atonement of Jesus Christ, all people will be resurrected. After we are resurrected, we will stand before the Lord to be judged according to our desires and actions. Each of us will accordingly receive an eternal dwelling place in a specific kingdom of glory. The Lord taught the principle when he said, quote, In my Father's house are many mansions. There are three kingdoms of glory, the celestial kingdom, the terrestrial kingdom, and the telestial kingdom. The glory we inherit will depend on the depth of our conversion expressed by our obedience to the Lord's commandments. It will depend on the manner in which we have received our testimony of Jesus. And then, of course, it quotes Doctrine and Covenants 7651 and other passages in Doctrine and Covenants 76. Here's what it says about the celestial kingdom. The celestial kingdom is the highest of the three kingdoms of glory. Those in the kingdom will dwell forever in the presence of God the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ. This should be your goal, to inherit celestial glory and to help others receive that great blessing as well. Such a goal is not achieved in one attempt. It is the result of a lifetime of righteousness and constancy of purpose. The celestial kingdom is a place prepared for those who have received the testimony of Jesus and have, quote, been made perfect through Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, who wrought out this perfect atonement through the shedding of his own blood. To inherit this gift, we must receive the ordinances of salvation, keep the commandments, and repent of our sins. For a detailed explanation of those who will inherit celestial glory, see Doctrine and Covenants 76. In January of 1836, the prophet Joseph Smith received a revelation expanding his understanding of the requirements to inherit celestial glory. The heavens were opened up to him, and he saw the celestial kingdom. He marveled when he saw his brother Alvin there, even though Alvin had died before receiving the ordinances of, of baptism. Then the voice of the Lord came to the prophet Joseph Smith, quote, All who have died without a knowledge of this gospel, who would have received it if they had been permitted to tarry, shall be heirs of the celestial kingdom of God. Also, all that shall die henceforth without a knowledge of it, who would have received it with all their hearts, shall be heirs of that kingdom. For I, the Lord, will judge all men according to their works, according to the desires of their heart. Commenting on this revelation, the prophet Joseph said, quote, I also beheld that all the children who die before they arrive at the years of accountability are saved in the celestial kingdom of heaven. From another revelation to the prophet Joseph, we learn that there are three degrees within the celestial kingdom. To be exalted in the highest degree and continue eternally in family relationships, we must enter into the new and everlasting covenant of marriage and be true to that covenant. In other words, temple marriage is a requirement for obtaining the highest degree of celestial glory. See Doctrine and Covenants 131. All who are worthy to enter into the new and everlasting covenant of marriage will have that opportunity, whether in this life or the next. End quote. And I'm going to link to this. This is actually from LDS.org. I've, I've heard Mormons argue that there's no such thing as three degrees in the celestial kingdom, and it's right here on LDS.org as of 2015. So uh, here, we have, here we have this linked where uh, the churches, LDS church is saying this. And there's more to read about the different kingdoms, but I want you to understand that there are three kingdoms, if you die, celestial, terrestrial, and telestial. And Mormons are sort of taught that they're going to the celestial kingdom. Now, 
It's sort of this weird polygamous doctrine that creeps in to the celestial kingdom part of of things because the celestial kingdom is uh for really people that are the most righteous that have the most covenants that have the most anointings and all of those kinds of things. I will say as we will demonstrate in this podcast, this doctrine is probably one of the most painful doctrines, painful and confusing doctrines to an average member at least in the LDS church. And I have heard stories of it being painful in fundamentalist communities as well. The reason why it's painful is first, in our culture, it is touted as a beautiful, restoring doctrine. It's something that we should all be proud of. In fact, any Mormon that's ever gone to a funeral will have some ancestor or some family member say, aren't we so lucky? We are so lucky to not be sad today because we know the person who passed away is going to a better place. We have a sure knowledge of what happens after this family member dies. And of course, there's this backhanded insinuation and sometimes just outright insinuation if the person is not Mormon, um, that it's really sad that these people grieving at the funeral don't know, don't know the truth and don't know that their family member will be going here in the next life. And of course, this is a really strange thing because while we have this, we, we talk about how proud we are, how happy it makes us, how sure we are. There are some complications to this doctrine. And we're going to talk about those more in this podcast. But for an example, I talked to a young woman who um, is a decade younger than I am. So just out of the young women's program. And she was telling me that uh, she always, whenever the celestial kingdom was talked about in church, she would have this big pit of panic in her stomach because her dad struggled with alcohol. He was a secret alcoholic. It was something that their family tried to keep under wraps. And she was always worried that whenever they talked about celestial kingdom, she knew that their family wouldn't be there because their dad struggled with this problem. So to her, the celestial kingdom, instead of being this great place where she could be together with her family, was a symbol of death, of hell to her. And uh, I've talked about this similarly. When I began to struggle with the idea of polygamy, knowing that polygamy would be in heaven, to me that sounded like hell. So I always met heaven with a sort of reservation, a reserved anxiety and panic. So it's a really complicated thing. But it's important to lay the groundwork and explain this doctrine because you need to know that this idea of the three degrees of glory is really important. It's involved in a lot of temple ritual. I cannot recommend enough that you pick up Devery Anderson's brilliant book, The Development of LDS Temple Worship from 1846 to 2000. He has so many examples here of how the temple ceremony has evolved and changed. And of course it has changed. And you know what's so funny about that? There's an entire chapter devoted to talking about how things can never change. So there's this entire chapter dedicated to talking about how changes should not be happening in the LDS temple initiatories and temple ceremonies. And yet things have changed. Things have changed, and uh, we're going to talk about some weird symbolism now. So I know some of my fundamentalist listeners are going to be upset, and again, I'm going to talk about some things that could be considered sacred, and I mean no disrespect, but I do want to show the connections of how this doctrine works out. Now, me as an LDS girl, I was taught three degrees of glory. You know, celestial kingdom was for the Mormons. Terrestrial was for 
Mormons and good people, Mormons that didn't quite measure up to celestial Mormons and um, good, really good people like maybe the Dalai Lama or Gandhi or anyone that we consider to be really good as a Mormon, not knowing like the history, the, the history of all humanity. And then we had the celestial kingdom, the lowest kingdom, which was still heaven. It wasn't hell, but it was where, you know, Johnny Depp went and all these hedonist sinners went. That is how I understood heaven to be. And the idea was the people in the lower kingdoms cannot come visit people in the higher kingdoms. But the people in the higher kingdoms, in, in the celestial kingdoms and whatnot, had an elevator shaft that could go up and down. But you couldn't really go up and visit the other people. So the idea was if you're in the celestial kingdom... You have, you know, maybe someone who's bad in your family. You can go down and visit them, but they'll be lost and without their family. So the goal is the celestial kingdom. There's a lot of weird folk doctrine around this whole thing. But this, I'm just telling you how it was taught to me, or at least how I understood it. Let me just tell you how Elder Nelson explained this in General Conference talking about marriage. And I've linked to this clip on the website. Together we feel a profound sense of gratitude for the gospel of Jesus Christ. In this world abounding with misery, we're truly thankful for God's great plan of happiness. His plan declares that men and women are that they might have joy. That joy comes when we choose to live in harmony with God's eternal plan. The importance of choice may be illustrated by a homespun concept that came to mind one day when I was shopping in a large retail store. I call it Patterns of the Shopper. As shopping is part of our daily life, these patterns may be familiar. Wise shoppers study their options thoroughly before they make a selection. They focus primarily on the quality and durability of a desired product. They want the very best. In contrast, some shoppers look for bargains, and others may splurge, only to learn later, much to their dismay, that their choice did not endure well. And sadly, there are those rare individuals who cast aside their personal integrity and steal what they want. We call them shoplifters. The patterns of the shopper may be applied to the topic of marriage. A couple in love can choose marriage of the highest quality or a lesser type that will not endure. Or they can choose neither and brazenly steal what they want as marital shoplifters. The subject of marriage is debated across the world, where various arrangements exist for conjugal living. My purpose in speaking out on this topic is to declare as an apostle of the Lord that marriage between a man and a woman is sacred. It is ordained of God. I also assert the virtue of a temple marriage. It is the highest and most enduring type of marriage that our Creator can offer to His children. While salvation is an individual matter, exaltation is a family matter. 
Only those who are married in the temple and whose marriage is sealed by the Holy Spirit of promise will continue as spouses after death and receive the highest degree of celestial glory or exaltation. A temple marriage is also called a celestial marriage. Within the celestial glory are three levels. To obtain the highest, a husband and wife must be sealed for time and all eternity and keep their covenants made in the holy temple. The noblest yearning of the human heart is for a marriage that can endure beyond death. Fidelity to a temple marriage does that. It allows families to be together forever. Now, we are always told that polygamy will be in the celestial kingdom. Of course, as a Mormon woman, I was told that we would choose. It would be a choice. And the Lord would never give us anything that would make us unhappy, which, of course, is completely contradictory to what we've heard in this whole podcast episode where polygamy makes you unhappy, but that exalts you, right? It's your sacrifice. So I was told that. I was told that I would be made better, that someday, you know, my mind is going to be different in heaven. And I and I knew a core part of me that if this was such a core um, objection that I had, that if that changed me, if God somehow made it okay, I wouldn't be me anymore. So it was a really confusing confusing thing for me to think about. But it was also explained in sort of hush-hush tones that this higher doctrine was the idea that the celestial kingdom had three degrees of glory itself. And in the three degrees in the celestial kingdom, it was a sort of same working system, higher levels, um, lower levels. And the highest, highest, highest level was for polygamists. And I think that that's still the general consensus amongst a lot of people that think about these things, that the highest level of the celestial kingdom is for polygamists. And this is how they make sense with, you know, frontier doctrine that talked about polygamy being uh, required for exaltation. As far as polygamy goes, John Krakauer uh, talks about in his book, uh, Under the Banner of Heaven, and I think in the new film, Prophets Pray, they say this too, that Joseph Smith taught that there needs to be three wives to get into the celestial kingdom. I've had so many people since that film has come out ask me where that doctrine comes from. And there are actually tons and tons of documentations. A lot of people have written in their journals that they heard Brigham Young say this or whatever. And there is some trace evidence back to Joseph Smith teaching something like this. It comes from a similar revelation. Now, how it plays out in some Mormon fundamentalist communities are quorums. They call it first, second, and third quorum, just like the three degrees of glory. And in each quorum is a number of wives, three, five, and seven. Any Latter-day Saint, any Mormon knows the significance of these numbers. These numbers have meaning. Um, the earth was created in seven days. The Godhead has three people. It's all based on these numbers. So if you want to get into celestial kingdom, the first, second, and third quorum in those higher degrees of glory, you have three wives, five wives, or seven. And depending on what quorum you are depends on what your afterlife will look like. Now, Mormon fundamentals doctrine, I think this comes from Joseph Musser, basically says if you have seven wives, which is the first quorum, or maybe it's the third, I get it confused. If you have seven wives, you get to own your own planet and um, be a god and create your own 
planets, right? Now, this is a controversial thing because the LDS churches sort of distance themselves from it. I would say they distance themselves publicly from this because I think that this is still a part of Mormon doctrine, this idea that men will become gods and create their own planets. This ties into the Adam-God theory, the Adam-God doctrine, which means that Adam was the father of our world. So Adam is Elohim, he's God, and his wife, Eve, was the mother of our planet, planet Earth. He had multiple wives, and for every wife was a different planet. So if you obtain seven wives in this world, you make it to this highest degree of the celestial kingdom, and you get to plan at least seven planets, and then, you know, who knows how many how many wives you'll get to take on in the next life. So it's a really strange, really complicated, really sort of not talked about, sacred, secret, uh, confusing, we don't know much about it, you'll be happy in the next life sort of doctrine. But this is how it creeps in Mormon fundamentalism. And even there's talk that um, there was a... There's a big deal about garments. Uh, of course, you know, garments have changed a lot. For a long time, they were all long sleeves. Women wore skirts. Uh, they were tight. They had ties in there, um, with, uh, three holes. And there's controversy. Some people were making garments with buttons and they were in trouble for making garments with buttons because the strings were important because the strings are supposed to represent the three degrees of glory and each string represents a wife. This, of course, is fundamentalist doctrine that some fundamentalist groups still adhere to. It's a very sacred thing to them. Now, I was talking to a fundamentalist friend who um, is still a practicing Mormon fundamentalist in one of the groups, and he was telling me that this is a troubling doctrine and concerning doctrine for them as well, because what you have is you have you know, older men, men that are getting older that maybe are only given two wives and they know the end is coming and they only have these two wives. So they, they are in sort of this crisis of what their next life is going to be. They haven't made it into the first, second or third quorum because they haven't quite made it to three wives yet. And they're coming to the end of their life and they know that they're not going to be a God and get their own planet. This is an interesting doctrine because, you know, as a Mormon feminist, we always talk about how there's this inherent sexism in the doctrine. And in many ways, the only way that LDS women can get into heaven is through their husbands, right? We're going to talk about this coming up, the temple doctrine. But in this sort of fundamentalist doctrine, men cannot get into celestial kingdom, but through their wives. And this is how the sort of equality is, is spread out. Like, see, the church isn't sexist. It's men through women and women through men. But the roles are different right? Women are pulled in through their husbands and men acquire wives as, as if they are keys. So it's, it's this really weird, weird sort of dynamic. And of course, um, in DNC 131, it says, quote, in the celestial glory, there are three heavens or degrees. And in order to obtain the highest, a man must enter into the order of priesthood, meaning the new and everlasting covenant of marriage. And if he does not, he cannot obtain it. He may enter into the other, but that is the end of his kingdom. He cannot have an increase, end quote. This ties into that fundamentalist doctrine. You can't have an increase if you can't, you know, obtain a certain amount of wives. And LDS Mormons are not away from this either. I mean, we all know that to get in the celestial kingdom, you have to be married. Now, if you think about the logistics of it, that's really confusing too. And I think, it, I think off the top of my head, there's this great dialogue article that some statisticians, some Mormon nerds that, that are just fantastic 
go and do the demographics of the celestial kingdom. Like they, they tried to figure out if so many babies have died before, you know, the age of eight, before the age of accountability throughout the world's population. This is how many people are in the celestial kingdom versus this is how many people aren't. And they actually find that there are more males in the celestial kingdom than females, which is funny because that is what we are told as an excuse for polygamy, that there will be more females in heaven than males. And I think the ratio is like a wide gap. It's like 1 billion more males. And this is just based on their statistics. It's it's a fascinating article, and I will link to that as well. If anyone is on the fence about maybe if polygamy will be practiced in heaven and you know, are sort of buying the old rhetoric, the old excuses that polygamy is for the widows or maybe polygamy is for um, because they're are going to be more worthy females. Please check out this article. It's a lot of fun. There has always been a problem with conflicting statements on the necessity of plural marriage. This is why I call it messy Mormon polygamy. It's messy. Not everyone knows. Now, I argue that maybe a lot of the messiness comes from this hierarchical stance. We have seen in Mormonism for a long time that the hierarchy is key. Men in higher positions of power get it all. This includes exaltation. It's sort of this um, Marxist idea. If you think about how the masses, your average Latter-day Saint, are told about exaltation, it seems like it's free for everyone. You just have to be good enough. But that's not really true, is it? I mean, heaven is sort of this this pyramid scheme up to heaven, and it as you get closer to the top, it gets more narrow and more narrow. But it doesn't get more narrow for behavior. It gets more narrow because it's narrow. Only a few people can be at the top of this, right? Statistically, only a few men can have seven wives. Only a few men are righteous enough to have seven wives. So the bad news is for everybody else, they have to settle for lower degrees of glory. And we're told that's okay. You'll be happy with it because that's the kind of person you are. But there's, it's a really problematic thing. And I think some of the confusion comes in with leaders trying to reconcile this to members. You'll have members on the frontier who only have two wives or only have one wife. There's not enough women to go around to have more wives. And so you have statements that I'm going to read here in just a minute. Brigham Young saying, it's okay. Monogamy will get you into heaven as well, too. But then you have Brigham going and saying it to someone else that it's required for exaltation. I think he's speaking to the hierarchy. He's saying, some of you, it's required for exaltation because you guys are going to have it all and everyone else we're going to appease. Maybe that's not a fair reading, but that's where I think a lot of the confusion comes from. If Brigham Young was speaking to men who he knew would never rise through the ranks of church leadership hierarchy, polygamy became less and less necessary. Brian Hales uh, quotes Brigham Young saying, quote, if you desire with all your hearts to obtain the blessings which Abraham obtained, you will be polygamous, at least in your faith, or you will come short of enjoying the salvation and the glory which Abraham has obtained. On other occasions, he instructed, a man may embrace the law of celestial marriage in his heart and not take the second wife and be justified before the Lord. If it is wrong for a man to have more than one wife at a time, the Lord will reveal it by and by, and he will put it away that... It will not be known in the church. If it is necessary to have two wives, take them. If it is right, reasonable, and proper, and the Lord permits a man to have half a dozen wives, 
take them. But if the Lord says, let them alone, let them alone. How long? Until we go down to the grave, if the Lord demand it. If we could make every man upon the earth get him a wife, live righteously, and serve God, we would not be under the necessity, perhaps, of taking more than one wife. But they will not do this. The people of God, therefore, have been commanded to take more wives. Apostle John Henry Smith recalled that President Young once proposed that we marry but one wife, end quote. This is fascinating. There's a little bit of blaming the victim here. Brigham is saying, hey, if you don't have more polygamous wives, that's on you. It's because you're doing something wrong. When in reality, there were, we know after listening to this series, there was a lot of politics at play. It's also interesting. Again, I can't state enough. This is why polygamy is inherently sexist patriarchal doctrine. Women are not considered women. Like here we're talking about righteousness and exaltation, and we're talking about it in relation to the man. You know, this, this quote where he says, um, if every man could live righteously with one wife, that'd be great. But since he can't, we have to live this principle. This idea that men have to sacrifice with this principle because the harder it is, the more, um, exalted you're going to be. But it's on the backs of these women. Like the women are interchangeable and dispensable. It's also interesting to note that being a polygamist in your heart is something church leaders often talk about. So when I read some of the quotes, please keep that context in mind. It seems that even if you didn't practice the doctrine, believing in it is required. And we talked about this a few episodes back about how believing in it is a requirement in some of even the temple recommend questions of old, which really makes modern day cases interesting. If Kirk and Lindsay Van Allen are to be believed who have talked about their stories, their story on Mormon stories, they were talking about how the church is still a polygamist church and they got in trouble with their stake president and were threatened with excommunication for it simply for claiming that the church still believes in polygamy. And since the church is responding that way, it's an interesting thing. If the church excommunicates people for saying that the church believes in polygamy, is the church saying they don't believe in polygamy? Or are they saying, don't talk about it? What is it that they are saying? I think they're in a real bind. I don't think that they can say because it's complicated. It's messy. Orson Pratt said, quote, God told us Latter-day Saints that we shall be condemned if we do not enter into the, that principle. And yet I have now heard now and then a brother or sister say, I'm a Latter-day Saint, but I do not believe in polygamy. Oh, what an absurd expression. What an absurd idea. A person might as well say, I'm a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, but I do not believe in him. The Lord has said that those who reject this principle reject their salvation. They shall be damned, saith the Lord. End quote. And that's in Journal Discourses, volume 17, page 224. Then we have Apostle Joseph F. Smith, who taught in 1878, quote, There's a great deal said about plural marriage. It is a principle that pertains to eternal life. In other words, to endless lives or eternal increase. It is a law of the gospel pertaining to the celestial kingdom, applicable to all gospel dispensations. One commanded and not otherwise, and neither acceptable to God or binding on man unless given by commandment. Not only so given in this dispensation, but particularly adapted to the conditions and necessities thereof, and to the circumstances, responsibilities, and personal, as well as vicarious duties of the people of God in this age of the world." End quote. Now, that quote brings so many interesting things. One of them is it sort, shows sort of this like frontier 
19th century mindset of biology. I mean, these people really thought that internal increase meant having more women. It's the way that they understood biology. A man can increase with more women. The more he is able to plant his seed to have sexual partners with these women, the more he can increase. This is how they saw biology. Never mind statistics show that men had less, you know, biological children through their polygamous marriages than they did with their monogamous ones. But this is the way that they understood the doctrine. But another thing that that quote brings up is that polygamy was a lucrative system for church leadership, both in power by controlling the members and through money. You know, there's that quote that Wilford Woodruff was wrote in his diary that Brigham Young had made a good business out of sanctioning marriages because he was getting paid for every sanction of every marriage that was happening. But most importantly, Polygamy was a mechanism for controlling the way the church operated. You have this quote from Joseph F. Smith and many others that polygamy had to be sanctioned through the right channels. I mean, this is why we have all these breakoffs. Authority. Authority is so important because those who have authority have control. And if you can tell another man in the church that he can't get what he wants, he can't do what he wants because he doesn't have the right authority, and then you tell him it's because of something that he's done, then you have control. And I do want to point out that whatever temperature for exaltation the the leaders have, whether it's, you know, polygamy is required or polygamy is not required, the majority of everyday members, especially during the 19th century, were very, very concerned about it being a requirement. Just like I was concerned about about it being a requirement as a young girl growing up, it was even more so in the 19th century. You know, women, we've talked about this in the series often, women writing in their journals that they didn't want to enter into plurality, but knew that this was the only way to get into heaven. You can't have a system that is so hard and so difficult with so much heartache without offering some sort of either great incentive or terrible penalty. And good news, Mormon polygamy has both. It has incentives and it has penalties for the practice. The incentive is highest degree of the highest degree. The penalty is loss of salvation. You're not righteous enough. You can be destroyed. As far as a requirement goes, we have plenty of statements um, where leaders say it's required. So I'm going to read a bunch of those just so you have these in your back pocket because there's always this debate. Like I said, it goes back and forth. And I really think if it's not just outright contradictory, I really think it has to do with hierarchy, resources, and power. Brigham Young declared that plural marriage was required for exaltation on August 19th, 1866. He said, quote, the only men who become gods, even the sons of gods, are those who enter into polygamy. And many fundamentalist groups continue to follow this admonition. They sort of view the Mormon church, the LDS Mormon church, as being out of order because this. Brigham Young also said, quote, I shall have wives and children by the million and glory and riches and power and dominion and reign triumphantly. And that was in uh, volume eight of Journal Discourses, page 178. He's quite confident, you know, and why wouldn't he be at 55 wives to have this internal increase in his mortal coil? Just wait till he gets going to the celestial kingdom. He's made the seven and more. He's going to keep propagating into eternity. It sounds exhausting. Heber C. Kimball said, quote, they, Joseph and Hiram, had to do the works of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in order to be admitted where they are. They had to be polygamous in order to receive 
to be received into their society. That's Journal Discourses 4, page 224. Orson Pratt. He has so many golden gems of quotes. He said, quote, There will be many who will not hearken. There will be the foolish among the wise who will not receive the new and everlasting covenant in its fullness, and they never will attain their exaltation. Then we have Beth- Bathsheba Smith, wife of George A. Smith, who said, quote, President Woodruff, President Young, and President John Taylor taught me and all the rest of the ladies here in Salt Lake that a man, in order to be exalted in the celestial kingdom, must have more than one wife, that having more than one wife was a means of exaltation. And of course, you can find that in the Temple Lot case, um, pages 359 through 363. Joseph Smith, quoted by William Clayton, his secretary, quote, from him, Joseph Smith, I learned that the doctrine of plural and celestial marriage is the most holy and important doctrine ever revealed to man on the earth, and that without obedience to that principle, no man can ever attain to the fullness of exaltation and celestial glory. And that's in the Church Historical Record 6, uh, 226. Joseph F. Smith, he says, quote, The marriage of one woman to one man for time and eternity by the sealing power according to the law of God is a fulfillment of the celestial marriage, celestial law of marriage, in part, and is good so far as it goes. But this is only the beginning of the law, not the whole of it. Therefore, whoever has imagined that he could obtain the fullness of the blessings pertaining to the celestial law by complying with only a portion of its conditions has deceived himself. Cannot do it. End quote. That's in Journal Discourses uh, 2028. Lorenzo Snow, while in a state prison in 1886, uh, wrote a song. This is the last stanza of it. Quote, "'Twas 1843 the sacred law was shown to me which gives to men as loving wives God's only path to endless lives, end quote. Annie Clark Tanner in A Mormon Mother and Autobiography, page one, says, quote, The principle of celestial marriage was considered the capstone of the Mormon religion. Only by practicing it could be the highest exaltation in the celestial kingdom of God be obtained, end quote. This is a great quote from John Taylor, which he said in 1886. And um, he said, quote, all those who would enter into my glory must and shall obey my law, plural marriage. And have I not commanded men that if they were Abraham's seed and would enter into my glory, they would do the works of Abraham? I have not revoked this law, nor will I, for it's everlasting. And those who will enter into my glory must obey the conditions therein. This is from the 1886 Revelation. Uh, John Taylor also noted, quote, When did this commandment come from in relation to polygamy? It also came from God. It was a revelation given unto Joseph Smith from God and made binding upon his servants. When this system was first introduced among this people, it was one of the greatest crosses that was ever taken up by any set of man since the world stood. Joseph Smith told others, he told me, and I can bear witness of it, quote, if that if this principle was not introduced, the church and kingdom could not proceed. When this commandment was given, it was so far religious and so far binding upon the elders of the church that it was told them if they were not prepared to enter into it and to stem the torrent of opposition that would come in consequence of it, the keys of the kingdom would be taken from them. When I see any of our people, men or women, opposing a principle of this kind, I have years ago set them down on the high road to apostasy, and I do today. I consider them apostates and not interested in this church and in this kingdom. And you can find that in Journal Discourses, Volume 11, page 221. And of course, John Taylor is like this sort of um, polygamy hero, right? He was fighting the government, uh, giving a middle finger to the government, 
saying that God would never revoke this law, which is in contradiction with sort of the Gordon B. Hinckley idea, who says it's this program, right? I think J. Rubin Clark says this too. It's this program that was instituted, takes away, comes back, you know, goes away. John Taylor, I think, would have seen it really differently. And I would love, if I could ever have a great Sunstone panel with the dead, it would be with Gordon B. Hinckley and John Taylor talking about Lick Me. I would love to see that. Here's some more some more quotes um, in Journal of Discourses 6.282. Quote, If plural marriage is all connected with the exaltation of man, showing how be- he became exalted to be a priest and king, yea, even a god, like his father in heaven, without the doctrine that this revelation reveals, no man on earth could ever be exalted to be a god. End quote. Also, quote, only those who entered into plural marriage would become gods. This is what uh, Carmen Hardy quotes in Solemn Covenant. Um, it was a petition for amnesty signed in 1891 by the First Presidency and 12 Apostles. So they're saying only those who enter plural marriage would become gods. So that's also an interesting part of doctrine. In the Reed Smoot case proceedings, uh, they wrote, quote, We formally taught to our people that polygamy or celestial marriage, as commanded by God through Joseph Smith, was right, and it was a necessity to man's highest exaltation in the life to come, end quote. So these are just a handful. You can, you can search through um, journal discourses. You can search through diaries. This was required for a time, unless they lack the resources, right? So I want you to just let that sink in and and think about how this doctrine has really not only affected generations of psyches of the members, but also how it's affected the politics and the policies. This is strong stuff. We're talking about eternal rewards here, which is the ultimate goal in this faith, right? Everything we're doing is for the next life. Everything we're doing is for our exaltation. And if there are limited resources, if there are limited amounts of people limited amounts of people, women, then it becomes a really politicized religious practice. As the church was faced with the problem of convincing members who had heard decades of polygamous doctrine, like I quoted just a few minutes ago, and the principle is no longer in effect, the church has to deal with this idea that polygamy was required for exaltation. It has to deal with these degrees of glory. And I think, I think that there was a mechanism already in place for that, which is the highest order of the celestial kingdom. So it kind of made sense. So in some fundamentalist Mormons' minds, the prophets are actually leading us astray because they are leading us to exaltation, but not the highest degree of glory. So all of us Mormons are maybe not quite as righteous. Maybe we were, um, fence sitters in heaven, which of course has been used against, you know, anyone of African descent in the church. Now it's this idea that LDS Mormons are not being led to the highest degree of glory, that the prophets, the LDS prophets aren't um, allowing us our full potential. And a numbers game, it makes sense, right? Maybe we're not uh, destined to do that because we just can't fit everybody in the highest, highest, high top of the teeniest pyramid. After... One year after the manifesto, George Q. Cannon said, quote, I know there are a great many who feel that, this being a principle of exaltation, they may be in danger of losing their exaltation because of their inability to obey this. I want to say to all such that the Lord judges our hearts. He looks at our motives. 
There were a great many men in past times who never had the privilege of obeying this doctrine because the law was not given to them. Do you think that they are excluded from exaltation? Do you think that they will be deprived of celestial glory? I do not. End quote. So clearly, this idea is on the minds of the church members at the time, right after the manifesto. George Buchanan also said, quote, Is it not a costly bargain which they are asked to make to, bar- to barter off all hope of eternal felicity with wives and children in the celestial presence of God and the Lamb for the miserable favor of the world? So intimately interwoven is that precious doctrine with the exaltation of men and women in the great hereafter that it cannot be given up without giving up at the same time all hope of immortal glory. And he had actually said that in 1885. So about six years earlier, he is saying it's required and you'll give up all hope of immortal glory. And then within six years, he's saying, well, maybe it's not, it's not required. George M. Cannon, who is a son of Angus Cannon, um, wrote, quote, John B. Cannon recalled that his father, George M. Cannon, took him aside in the library of their home and told them that polygamous living was a requirement if one wished to enter in the highest level of the celestial kingdom. And that's from Solemn Covenant. In 1901, while serving as the one man holding the keys of the ceiling mentioned in DNC 132, church president Lorenzo Snow taught concerning monogamy, quote, some of the brethren are worrying about the matter and feel that they ought to have other wives. Brethren, do not worry. You will lose nothing. Turn to Heber, he said, quote, there is brother Heber J. Grant, who is without a son and who has consequently feels less anxious about it. I want to say to brother Grant that he will have sons and daughters and his posterity shall become as numerous as the sands upon the seashore or the stars in heaven. The promise made to Abraham is through his faithfulness. Brethren, don't worry about these things. And if you don't happen to secure the means you would like, don't feel disappointed. The Lord will make you rich in due time. And if you are faithful, you'll become gods in eternity. This I know to be truth, end quote. Now that quote is interesting because he's promising gods in the next life. And um, another thing that he does, though, is he promises Heber J. Grant that he will have a son. Now, in this next episode, next episode after this will be with the great historian D. Michael Quinn, and he talks about this revelation. So just keep that in mind and maybe rewind the podcast a little bit and listen to it one more time. This this is how polygamy permeates everything. I mean, we're talking about it as a requirement for celestial glory. Polygamy is a works doctrine. It is a works doctrine. Mormonism is a works church. This is why Mormons are accused of not being Christian, because they rely less on grace and more on works. Now, this is a controversial subject. Lots of Mormons and um, non-Mormons have argued about this for a long, long time. This is part of the reason why the church emphasized Jesus Christ in, in their name to prove that they are Christians. It's also in part why uh, the church was so adamant on using that and not the term Mormons because they wanted to distinguish themselves from Mormon fundamentalists. So this idea of changing their name to be the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, not really changing it, but really emphasizing it and asking members, especially in the 1980s, to not do this, really comes from polygamy, because we have to show that we're Christian, even though we are a works church. I'm going to let Elder Quentin L. Cook, an apostle for the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, explain this to you. He made this appeal to the media in 2008. Why does it disturb you when you see those who practice polygamy referred to as Mormons? First of all, it it creates a lot of confusion. Uh, we, uh, 
recently had a telephone call from a major uh, news organization asking for permission from us to uh, allow them to film in a temple of a polygamous sect that we have absolutely no connection with. Uh, we also had another news organization, highly respected, that ran a picture of the Salt Lake Temple, our temple, uh, and next to that wrote a story about a polygamous sect. Uh, this confusion clearly doesn't serve us well, but it's, it doesn't uh, uh, allow the readers to understand this distinction. Well, what is the distinction I'm talking about? Uh, the members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, often called Mormons, do not practice polygamy. And they have not practiced polygamy for over a century. To use Mormon with those who do practice polygamy is highly confusing, both to the public. Uh, it's of great concern to the church because our members don't engage uh, in polygamous uh, uh, conduct. And uh, it doesn't uh, allow the readers to make this significant distinction. When you realize that there are 13 million members of the church, most of these uh, polygamous sects are very small. Uh, the uh, difference between those is not made clear and is not helped when people put Mormon uh, in the title. I, I would like to make an appeal uh, to the media. They, they're, we've met uh, with them and for the most part they're trying to do the very best they can. But I would like to make an appeal to them on behalf of the church to clearly make that distinction. That to not include Mormon with the word uh, polygamous, uh, to not identify the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, the Mormon church, with polygamy. Uh, they're entirely separate and it would make it uh, so that everybody understood the situation better uh, if they uh, ceased uh, doing that, and we would appreciate it. When you look at the church today, uh, there are a little over 13 million members. Uh, they're spread out all over the world. More than half of them are outside of the United States. Uh, a large number of them are converts. Uh, the churches increased in size from a little under a little over 6 million in 1987 to over 13 million today. Uh, there's no connection of any kind with uh, any polygamist groups. These uh, people uh, live very much in the mainstream of the countries where they live. Uh, and yet uh, media uh, sometimes, uh, sometimes probably without understanding, writes things that make it look like that we're connected with some polygamous sect that uh, is being focused on at that particular time. As an example, uh, we just uh, had in a very good Australian newspaper uh, an article that started off in the first paragraph saying childhood within a fundamentalist Mormon community means little education, regular beatings, rigorously enforced household duties, and for girls, an arranged marriage in their teens culminating in a lifetime of subservient, subservience. Nothing could be further from the truth uh, with respect to the members of the church. Let me just give you three or four examples to demonstrate what I'm talking about. First of all, uh, in terms of the education level of the membership of the church, it's very high. 
the leadership of the church has in consistently encouraged education. And at this point, uh, in the United States, approximately 60% of all the members have some college education, whereas the country as, whole, as a whole, that level is at about 50%. So the church membership is uh, quite highly educated. Uh, second, uh, there are no arranged marriages. Uh, the members of the church go through a, a normal uh, process in terms of finding their uh, companions. They choose them on their, uh, by themselves. And the average age for marriage uh, is approximately 23, a little over for men, uh, when they get married. And there'd be no arranged marriages uh, in that group. Um, third, uh, their occupations are uh, spread across the normal occupations for the country in which they live. They uh, don't live uh, separate or uh, from the mainstream of the communities. They uh, don't, uh, they're not isolated in any way or uh, dress a certain way or uh, have uh, unique hairstyles or anything else that would distinguish in them distinguish them from the communities uh, in which they live. And so to read something uh, like this uh, and when they there is no polygamy and we have no members that are allowed to uh, be involved in that, they'd be excommunicated from the church if they did practice polygamy. That's something that's of great concern to the members of the church. And so that's, that's the uh, reason that, uh, that we uh, take exception to this kind of writing. The works part that separates us from, say, the Community of Christ, which is very much a grace church. The Community of Christ, formerly RLDS, relies heavily on the grace of Jesus Christ and less on works. Mormons do not, and it's because of this doctrine, largely in part of this doctrine, that has to do with polygamy. Polygamy is a works doctrine. You do something, you do these hard things to gain your exaltation. You get your three, five, or seven wives to move up in to exaltation. Grace is in there somewhere, but in this really small, funky ways, and not in the way that larger Christianity would understand. So, if there's this challenge of defining doctrine no longer being used, what what do you do with it? Let's talk about DNC 132. This section is so important because it's not only talking about polygamy, but it affects so many doctrines in the church, which is interesting because this is considered the sort of polygamous revelation. Now, Brian Hales and Lara Hales would argue that it's the, you know, eternal marriage revelation. But, uh, if we know the context of this revelation, it was given to talk to Emma Smith about polygamy. Speaking of DNC 132, President Harold B. Lee taught, quote, Some folks have the mistaken notion that if somehow, by hook or crook, they can get into the house of the Lord and be married, they are assured of exaltation regardless of what they do. And they'll quote the 132 section, the 26th verse. But that isn't what the Lord means. The Lord does assure an exaltation to those who make mistakes if they repent. And he said that in Provo, 1954. Joseph Fielding Smith commented, quote, Verse 26 in the section 132 is the most abused passage in any scripture. The Lord has never promised any soul that he may be taken into exaltation without the spirit of repentance. While repentance is not stated in this passage, yet it is, and it must be implied. It is strange to me that everyone knows about verse 26, but it seems that they have never read or heard of Matthew 12, 31 through 32, where the Lord tells us the same thing in substance as we find in verse 26, section 132. So we must conclude that those spoken of in verse 26 are those who have sinned, having fully repented, and are willing to pay the price of their sinning, else the blessings of exaltation will not follow. 
Repentance is absolutely necessary for the forgiveness, and the person having sin must be cleansed. End quote. And this is in Doctrines of Salvation, uh, Volume 2, pages 95, sorry, chapter 2, 95 to 96. This is polygamy as a works doctrine. This is why we're a works church. It's because of polygamy, because of section 132. Polygamy is a works doctrine. Exaltation must be worked towards. They're saying the one verse that we have that even hints at grace, verse 26, they're saying we're putting the brakes on that a little bit and we're saying that you have to repent to do it. Completely a works doctrine. Just as we discussed the way some Mormon fundamentalists see the quorum of wives, the three, five, and seven, Mormons couldn't rid themselves completely of the idea that polygamy is required for exaltation. We have LDS apostle Bruce McConkie write, quote, that those who attain exaltation inherit in due course the fullness of the glory of the Father, meaning they have all that they have all power in heaven and on earth. He writes this in Mormon Doctrine, page 257. Um, the DNC 132.16-26 says, quote, Then shall they be gods because they have no end. Then shall they be gods because they have all power. This is the ultimate goal in Mormonism. Sandra Tanner, who is considered uh, one of, I guess, the biggest anti-Mormon in uh, Mormonism, she runs a ministry that, that talks about these things, uh, writes the following. She says, quote, one of the requirements to reach this goal in what Mormons call celestial marriage. Today, celestial marriage is simply defined as a marriage in a Mormon temple designed to last not just until death, but throughout all eternity. Couples joined in such marriages are considered sealed to one another. Their children afterward are automatically sealed to them as well. This, they believe, ensures that their family will continue in heaven eternally as a complete unit. McConkie wrote, quote, Celestial marriage is the gate to exaltation, and exaltation consists in the continuation of the family, un- family unit in eternity. Exaltation is the kind of life which God lives, Mormon Doctrine 257. Celestial marriage is an absolute necessity to reach the desired goal. Its importance in the place of salvation and exaltation cannot be overestimated. The most important thing that any member of the LDS Church ever does in this world are, quote, to marry the right person in the right place by the right authority and to keep the covenant made in connection with this holy and perfect order of matrimony. And that's from Mormon Doctrine, page 118. Sandra Tanner continues, quote, All Mormon men who desire godhood are required to marry. If they do not, their leaders have taught that their actions will be displeasing to God. For instance, 10th President Joseph Fielding Smith said, quote, Any young man who carelessly neglects his great commandment to marry, or who does not marry because of a selfish desire to avoid the responsibilities which married life will bring, is taking a course which is displeasing in the sight of God. There can be no exaltation without it. If a man refuses, he is taking a course which may bar him forever from exaltation. And this is from Doctrines of Salvation uh, 274. Those who choose to remain single or do not enter in this covenant of celestial marriage while on earth are no longer in obedience to God or to LDS authorities. They will not advance to godhood, but will be given menial tasks as angels for all eternity. Quote, Many who practice celibacy do so out of an excessive religious devotion and with the idea in mind that they are serving their maker. In reality, they are forsaking some of the most important purposes of their creation. That's from Mormon Doctrine 119. And then from DNC 132, quote, Therefore, when they are out of the world, they are appointed angels in heaven to minister for those who are worthy of a far more and an exceeding and an eternal weight of glory. For these angels did not abide my law, end quote. 
Bill McKeever said, quote, Mormon temples and the rituals performed in them constitute one of the most important disciplines of the LDS faith. While a great portion of the activity in Mormon temples is on behalf of the dead, baptism for the dead, endowments for the dead, etc., marriage ceremonies for the living called celestial marriage also plays a very important role in the LDS views of salvation. Like many other unique doctrines brought about by the LDS Church, celestial marriage has gone through its share of redefining and development. Again, you can find this in, you know, Deborah Anderson's book. Today, celestial marriage merely means to be married for time and eternity in an LDS temple. To the 19th century Mormon, celestial marriage was synonymous with plural marriage. Mormon historians concede that celestial and plural marriage were at one time inseparable. According to David John Berger, Quote, celestial marriage was applied to and equated with plural marriage until the late 19th century. Thomas G. Alexander, on page 60 of his Mormonism and Transition, wrote, quote, Generally, the terms of new and everlasting covenant of marriage, celestial marriage, and plural marriage were thought to be equivalent. When compelled by the U.S. government to abandon plural marriage in the late 1800s, LDS leaders redefined celestial marriage. For example, Heber J. Grant and his, told his counselors in 1914, quote, celestial marriage, that is, marriage for time and eternity, and polygamous and plural marriages are not synonymous terms. Monogamous marriages for time and eternity, solemnized in our temples, in accordance with the word of the Lord and the laws of the church, are celestial marriages. End quote. And that's from Messages of the First Presidency, 5-329. So people like to hate on Brian Hales, with his interpretation that uh, polygamy is not celestial marriage. But he's not wrong. Later prophets did try to redefine the practice. And we see this in Devery's book, The Development of LDS Temple Worship. I mean, you have to understand that there was a requirement in the temple at one point that before anyone could get their endowments out, they had men and women could not have sexual relations for a week before that. So not only were their sexual mores a little bit different, but um, let's say you were a married couple, you had to abstain from sex for a week before getting the endowment. The garments change, the oaths change, everything has changed and shifted. And so from someone like perhaps Brian Hales' point of view, this is just a new update, a new um, progression in the development of temple worship. But it's confusing, right? We have all of these conflicting narratives, conflicting statements that this tradition of polygamy brings, which is tell the public one thing, tell the private another thing, tell the elite private something else. Here is what Mormon.org has to say about it. You can go on and read this. It says, quote, at various times, the Lord has commanded his people to practice plural marriage. For example, he gave this command to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, David, and Solomon. At other times, the Lord has given other instructions. In the Book of Mormon, the Lord told the prophet Jacob, quote, For there shall not any man among you have, have save it be one wife, and concubines he shall have none. For if I will, saith the Lord of hosts, raise up seed unto me, I will command my people, otherwise they shall hearken unto these things. In this dispensation, the Lord commanded some of the early saints to practice plural marriage. The prophet Joseph Smith and those closest to him, including Brigham Young and Heber C. Kimball, were challenged by this command, but they obeyed it. Church leaders regulated the practice. Those entering into it had to be authorized to do so, and the marriages had to be performed through the sealing power of the priesthood. In 1890, President Wilford Woodruff received a revelation that leaders of the church should cease teaching the practice of plural marriage in Official Declaration 1. It's interesting that they use the term should stop 
teaching the practice of plural marriage instead of stop practicing plural marriage. More from Mormon.org. The Lord's law of marriage is monogamy unless he commands otherwise to help us establish the house of Israel, end quote. And this shift from being a plural church to a monogamous one didn't take long. It didn't take long for Mormons like me to forget our own history. The church from my vantage point growing up was a monogamous one. No one around me, at least that I knew of, lived polygamy. So if someone would say, and they did say whenever, especially when I went out of state, oh, don't you guys practice polygamy in Utah? Aren't all Mormons polygamous? I would get really defensive. And because you know, Mormons are so tired of being associated with polygamy. That's something Brigham Young did. That's not something we did. At least that's how we saw it. I think part of the polygamy denial today comes from the sort of exhaustion of being associated with a practice that most LDS Mormons know nothing about. So we're exhausted for being accused of something we ourselves don't even know. We ourselves don't even know the history. So to us, the claims seem absurd. And yet, as the series has shown, those parallels, those who are conflating the LDS church with polygamy are completely justified. Polygamy is everywhere, both in practice and in principle. Sorry for the pun. Let's talk more about this quorum of wives, this fundamentalist doctrine, and how it's connected to the LDS initiatory practices. So a lot of these guys that started Mormon fundamentalists were endowed members. They were apostles in the church. They were um, very faithful higher-ups in the church. They had been through the temple. They had helped develop some of the temple ritual, and then they're barred from the temple. We can't talk about fundamentalism without talking about LDS temple practices. Again, this is all showing how related they are. Now, when they go into the temple, uh, a man is actually anointed through a ceremony where he becomes a king and a priest unto the Most High God. And every woman is anointed in preparation to become a queen and priestess. And now all of this is sort of told in feminist Mormon circles that, you know, women are king, queens and priestesses, so they have the priesthood, they're anointed. But there's careful wording here, and this has to do with the three, five, and seven, women being tickets, the keys to men's salvation, to unlocking the door to a man creating a world. Well, this comes from this wording. So men are anointed to be king and priest unto the most high God. They're anointed to be a priest for God. And women are a queen and priestess unto her husband. Okay? So she becomes a priestess, not to God, but to her husband, even if she is not yet married. Another troubling part is when uh, women promise to keep the law of the Lord and hearken unto the counsel of their husbands as he hearkens unto the counsel of the Father. So men only promise to obey the law of God and keep his commandments. And women have to obey that counsel filtered through their husbands. So God, the pattern of heaven is God commands the husband and the husband commands the wife. We see this all throughout Mormon fundamentalism. This is how they live their day-to-day lives. This is how it is practiced. So they're living the pure religion. Um, we can talk about how they're tainted and how they've taken things and corrupted it, but they're doing it right. A lot of them are doing it really by the book. And they argue that we're the ones that are being led astray. We're the ones that aren't getting our eternal salvation because our prophets have led us astray. You know, it's it's a beautiful concept to be sealed together for eternity, but it's a problematic one, like I like I said earlier. Now remember that this practice was formally reserved only for white couples. White couples that uh you know jumped through the certain hoops. For a long, long time, 
black people were barred from the temple. They could not enter the temple. So this is a very regulated, very hierarchical, very white practice. Again, we've talked about how polygamy leaves out black people entirely and sort of has some wiggle room for native people and people of Latin descent. Now, a woman gives herself to her husband and the man receives her in the temple. And the man doesn't have equal language in the temple. The ceiling right is all different. Women are possessions to their husband, just like in fundamentalist doctrine. So polygamy is actually like a temple ordinance being lived out. I mean, you want to see what happens in the temple. It's really, watch how Mormon fundamentalist family dynamics happen. This is how it happens. Men can be sealed to multiple women for eternity, but women cannot be sealed to multiple men. This is how Wikipedia explains that practice. Although plural marriage is currently prohibited in the church, a man can be sealed to multiple women in the case of widowers who are sealed to their dead and living wives. Additionally, men who are dead may be sealed by proxy to all women to whom they were legally married while alive. Recent changes in church policy has also allowed women to be sealed to multiple men, but only after both she and her husband are dead. Church doctrine is not entirely specific on the status of men or women who are sealed by proxy to multiple spouses. There are at least two possibilities. Quote, one, regardless of how many people a man or a woman is sealed to by proxy, they will only remain with one of them in the afterlife, and that the remaining spouses, who might still merit the full benefits of exaltation that come from being sealed, would then be given to another person in order to ensure each has an eternal marriage. And two, these ceilings create effective plural marriages that will continue after death. There are no church teachings clarifying whether polyandrous relationships exist in the afterlife, so some church members doubt whether this possibility would apply to women who are sealed by proxy to multiple spouses. The possibility for women to be sealed to multiple men is a recent policy change enacted in 1998. Church leaders have neither explained this change nor its doctrinal implications. It should be noted, however, that proxy ceilings like proxy baptisms are merely offered to the person in the afterlife, indicating that the purpose is to allow the woman to choose the right, the right man to be sealed to, as LDS doctrine forbids polyandry. So it's basically that women cannot be sealed to multiple men, but the understanding is that they will be sealed to multiple men so they can choose in the next life temple ceiling wording is set up for the woman to give herself entirely to one man while he receives her and re has a potential to receive other women. And I want you to notice the, the wording in this, this next thing from LDS.org. This is from their uh, policies page. Children who are born after their mother has been sealed to a husband are born in the covenant. They do not need to receive the ordinance of sealing to parents. Okay, so I want, I'm going to read that again, and I want you to notice the unusual wording of, quote, their mother versus a husband, as if mothers associated with their children are interchangeable. The man is the key thing here, and women are just sort of these interchangeable um, placeholders. It says, quote, children who are born after their mother has been sealed to a husband are born in the covenant. They do not need to receive the ordinance of sealing to the parents. More from LDS.org. Sealing couples with undocumented marriages. You may have a deceased couple sealing to each other if they live together as husband and wife, even if the marriage cannot be documented. You can use the Family Search Internet site to prepare these names for temple ordinances without any other appro approval process. 
deceased women married more than once. Oh, and I should point out that, uh, like Warren Jeffs and, um, Rulon Jeffs and, sorry, not Warren Jeffs, Rulon Jeffs and all of his wives and a lot of these fundamentalists have had their LDS temple work done for them. Um, more from LDS.org. Deceased women marry more than once. You may have a deceased woman sealed to all men to whom she was legally married. However, if she was sealed to a husband during her life, all her husbands must be deceased before she can be sealed to a husband to whom she was not sealed to during life. So what LDS.org is saying is, let's say a woman gets married in the temple, age 20, marries a guy, uh, they're sealed in the temple, they live for 10 years, and he dies. She waits a while later on, gets remarried, uh, wants to get sealed to this guy in the temple. She ends up spending 30 or 40 years with her second husband. She cannot be sealed to him because she's sealed to her first husband. She actually has to wait to have a sealing done after her husband dies. Hear more from LDS.org. You may do ordinance work for only for persons of your own gender. Those who do baptisms baptisms and confirmations at the temple must be at least 12 years old, must be baptized and confirmed, and must have a current temple recommend. Males must hold the priesthood. Those who do other temple ordinances must be endowed and have a current temple recommend. End quote. So because polygamy is so tied, um, is tied to the core of Mormon doctrine, the church really has their work cut out for them. I've explained some of the ways that the church leadership has had to distance themselves from the practice which proves a point to a lot of critics who say that the church has changed and can change again. If the church can take this essential doctrine, this doctrine required for eternal salvation, and reframe it to non-essential, but just a temporary thing, they too can do the same thing with homosexuality, with priesthood, with race, and so many other things. If there are degrees within degrees of celestial glory— you can carve out a spot for almost anything. I have talked to um, the famous, wonderful Claudia Bushman, and I'm going to let her tell you what she thinks about this practice. I'm Claudia Bushman. I'm one of the senior female-type people in the church, and I uh, have a long history with some of the groups of one kind or another exponent to other things. I'm a scholar. I write books about history, about the church, and about uh, mostly 19th century culture. And uh, I'm currently a senior fellow at the American Antiquarian Society, which is a private library in Worcester, Massachusetts. Yeah, and you're amazing and such an inspiration to so many Mormon women. So Mm -hmm. it's such an honor to have you. Well, thank you. That's very kind. We've been talking about, we've been doing this series, and we're almost finished talking about the history of Mormon polygamy. So I want to kind of hear your thoughts on it and how you as a Mormon woman have reconciled, if at all, if you have reconciled, or how you um, deal with the issue of plural marriage. Well, plural marriage is certainly the big elephant uh, in the room uh, in church. Uh, And certainly now all of our contemporary women have been socialized to want um, nuclear um, companion marriages, but uh, that has not always been true for the church. And so here we take this strong stand, but we have this very interesting, colorful background. And uh, what I say is that uh, polygamy in the church in the past was, for me, 
an act of consecration by the women. And what I mean is this. When uh, in the early days the men were asked to live the United Order, they couldn't do it. They tried, but they failed. They just were not willing to share their goods. And the women were asked to live this new order of marriage, polygamy, give up their good names and their private kitchens and all sorts of things. And uh, it was hard for them, but they did it. They did it as an act of consecration, is what I think, sacrificing everything for the good of the kingdom and so on. Now, um, we tend to think of polygamy as being about a lot of old patriarchs, but really it's not. It's really about a lot of plural wives. And Laurel's new book is going to make that quite clear. I mean, the men are definitely the minority in this operation. It's mostly a woman's thing. And so the men come and go, but they don't really take ownership of the household nearly the same way that the women do. So I see that uh, it is primarily a woman's operation. But it is also uh, a situation where the women don't have a lot to say about it. I think the very language of polygamy is is just extremely tough. Um, They talk about um, taking this woman or giving this woman in plural marriage or something like that, just as if you were some cipher rather than a human being entering into a contract in which you're a major person. So I think that's very hard on the women. And I think it's tough because uh, we want to have some say. And yet the way it's presented to us, we don't have much say. So I will tell you one of the ways I came to deal with this. When I was newly married, my very virtuous husband um, with the church in every way. I tried to get him to promise me that he wouldn't marry and polygamy, that he wouldn't take another wife. See, I'm using this terrible language right there. Wouldn't take another wife. He wouldn't, wouldn't marry somebody else. And uh, he just wouldn't promise. He didn't know what would be required of him down the line. He didn't want to perjure himself or anything like that. And I just felt very bad about this. But eventually, and it's really only quite recently, that I managed to deal with it. And what I say is, um, instead of just saying, please, please don't do this, what I say is, all right, if you do this, you are not because we all know there's a fair amount of coercion involved. But whether I agree or not, if you marry another woman, I promise to make life hell for both of you, which I am quite capable of doing. And uh, that you would be surprised how much freedom and purpose and just involvement that gives me, you know, whether I do that or not. You know, I have something to say about it at least instead of, yeah. just, instead of just walking out the back door in tears, you know. You, you, you're part of this and you make decisions. Now, I think it's also, uh, though we're all used to this kind of nuclear marriage today and it's definitely what we want, uh, we also knew, know that um, things are changing fast in the world and that things that were unthinkable five years ago are now going to be the law of the land, or will be shortly, or 
And so if we look around at all, we can see that there are all kinds of marriage and family patterns going. And ours isn't, our nuclear companion marriage isn't necessarily the best or only one that there will be. Uh, I think probably you could get used to just about anything if you felt you had to. And so I think there will definitely be more, more kinds of relationships. So I think, um, although we would just like to say, forget about that past, it's never going to happen again. We don't know what's going to happen. <laughs> we might like it, we might not. So the future is unknown. And, um, but if we are involved in it, and if the women are a majority party, they're going to have a lot more to say about it than we feel like they did in the past. So that's one of the ways I deal with polygamy. Maybe you could tell me ways that you see that polygamy shows up in the LDS church today. A lot of people talk about the sealing practices and things like that, but I was wondering if you think that polygamy has influenced other aspects of our culture or our theology or our doctrine. Well, I think it's very true that uh, gender is an absolute in the church. There are males and there are females, but we also, uh, and certainly that's what we have in our seating practices and our general marriage and our temple marriage and all that business. But uh, we also know that that's not what we've got in nature. We have all kinds of variations, variations that are coming to light and popularity that we couldn't have imagined a while ago. And we're just going to have to deal with those and how we go from dealing with the absolutes which we have in our thought and our services and our rituals, how we go from dealing with those absolutes to dealing with what looks more like um, the way the world is, you know, then uh, how we're going to do that, I don't know. I think we would do best to just stop talking about it. <laughs> that is, it'd be better if our leaders would just stop talking about it for a while. <laughs> Let the situation evolve. Let's see where we're going to go. But meanwhile, how are we going to treat these people that are different and in different situations than we are? I mean, I'm sure you've seen that um, Utah, the two big parades in Utah have turned down allowing the Building Bridges group to march in their parades, the one on the 4th and the one on the 24th of July, which is really just yeah. very unfortunate because why not? Isn't that something we can, we can do? I, I don't see why we can't. If we're going to have um, ever make peace with this issue, we have to move ahead in some directions like that. Um, so let me the, ask you about that. So what you say to make peace with this issue, do you think that polygamy, our polygamous past, opens that door or provides a, an outlet maybe for that? Well, I hadn't thought of it uh, working in that direction, but why not? Why not have <laughs> representatives from many marital groups and marching? But certainly the Building Bridges group, which is just is not really an advocacy group, but it's just a, a civility group as far as I can see. We have to live with the people that live here. I mean, we see the Boy Scouts crumbling even as we watch, and not that they shouldn't, but, you know, the world is changing, and we just have to be able to change with it. And you can say, well, we've got our temple ceremonies and so on, but we also know 
that our temple ceremonies have changed many times, that maybe the original seating uh, operations that were involved in plural marriage are what has evolved into our seating of families over the, over the generations and the years so that we are all sealed together. So that from our past also seems to me to say that we can, we can change, we can move in various directions. What do you see being the legacy of polygamy? Because everyone asks me that question when I do news reports or um, things like that. They say, what is the legacy of polygamy? How would you answer that question? <laughs> what I say is that it gives us access to a wonderful, weird, mystic, crazy, but um, rigorous past. Uh, you know, we come from a crazy stock of people. We do things that are impossible, but we do them. And uh, uh, does it mean that we are going to have polygamy in the afterlife? I have no idea about what that means. I certainly, for one, am not interested in spending the eternities having babies. I think that's very tiresome. Surely we can do some other things than that. So uh, the legacy, I think it does influence a number of people who might or do join the church but I'm not sure how it does. Um, you know, it's just one of those those things about Mormons. They say they're such nice people, but they have such crazy beliefs, and uh, that seems to be true to me. It is crazy, but that they did it, that they pulled it off, despite all the terrible difficulties involved, is very impressive. Do you think the LDS Church has a responsibility to deal with uh, the criminal abuse that's happening in the other today? Do you think there's any responsibility there? The FLDS Church. Does the LDS Church have a responsibility to sort of clean up the mess polygamy has left in Utah? How can they clean it up? There it is. It exists. We have all those relationships that wouldn't have happened otherwise. Are you from polygamous stock? Is that in your family? Yeah, yeah. I am, yes. See, I don't really have it in my direct line, but my grandmother and my, and my great-grandmother, mother and daughter, came over from Denmark at the same time, about age 18, about age 36, and they both married at the same time and raised parallel families. But, uh, and the mother of this pair married a second, was a second wife. But that's the only polygamy in my family, so I have none in my direct line. Certainly people say that that is where the valiant spirits come from, but I don't have any great sense of that. Uh, I think um, I see wonderful valiant spirits joining the church from all kinds of strange situations, and I just don't think we want anybody to think that they have a monopoly on that kind of virtue. That's really interesting. Um, is there anything else you want to say on the topic of polygamy? Any stories you want to share before I let you go? Well, I had some other things to say, but I can't remember what they were. Much better ideas than these, I'm afraid, Lindsay. But, you know, you do what you can at the moment. No, if we're called, <laughs> wouldn't you rather be alone than, be, than marry into polygamy? I think that is now an option for people. And also, I think... Um, Many, uh, I'm waiting to see female colonies 
that are self-sufficient, like um, nunneries, things like that. We just have too many good women. We have to have some new plans to deal with them. You know, you, you bring up a question that I never thought about before, but now could choose to be alone. Could they choose to be alone in the 19th century if they wanted to be alone? Well, you see, in effect, uh, Eliza Snow was alone. I don't suppose she ever really lived in a marital relationship with either of those first two presidents of the church. Whether she had a sexual experience or not, I don't know, but certainly she lived alone as much as any married woman could and uh, certainly managed her own life, uh, probably with some support from Brigham Young. I don't suppose she got any from Joseph Smith. So, yes, it would be possible, but it would be hard, you know, just coming up with enough money to live on under those circumstances would be hard. But plenty of polygamous women manage on their own, and single women could manage too. And that's, that's a great point. Thanks for bringing that up. Okay. All right. I wish I could think of something better to say, but that's all I've got at the moment. So It's, I, it's a complicated thing, but I, I really appreciate you taking the time to, to talk about it with me. Yeah. Okay. Well, we can't be afraid of the future. We just have to step into it no matter what. So. I like that. So carry on. Now, we talked earlier about the church having to distance itself from the practice, doing some seemingly contradictory things, reframing a, a doctrine that exists in the temple currently today to be a elsewhere monogamous practice is really interesting. And polygamy rights are still adhered to. By my estimation, temple ceremony is very polygamous. And it's very strange that as a Mormon woman going through the temple many, many times, my husband and I went weekly to see the temple as monogamous, um, it never made sense to me. I would have never thought it was polygamous. That didn't make sense to me. But now you know all the background. You know Adam God. You know the history of polygamy. And you know that these rights were developed in part with the principle of plurality. It's odd to think that I went through so many polygamous rights that are lived out in Mormon fundamentalists every single day. And yet I thought it was a monogamous eternal marriage ceremony about me and my husband. This distancing causes the church to sort of, in my opinion, overcorrect in some unusual ways. Uh, from the confidential Mormon church handbook of instructions for bishops, stake presidents, etc., this is so, something that they have um, in there about members who whose close relatives belong to apostate groups. Quote, bishops and their counselors must take exceptional care when issuing recommends to members whose parents or other close relatives belong to or sympathize with apostate groups. Such members must demonstrate clearly that they repudiate those apostate religious teachings before they may be issued a recommend, end quote. Now, I talked about this in the last episodes, uh, this idea that we can't let Mormon fundamentals in the temple. It's such a strange, it's really such a strange thing when you think about it. These people are barred from it. And a lot of this is about authority and a lot of it is about PR and a lot of it is about old bad blood and old feuds. But they will not even let, I mean, you have to have special authority as children of polygamists to, to, uh, make sure you're renouncing your parents. We already talked about current apostles marrying single women as second wives. This is something that, uh, Chrissy Money is going to tell us about. So I'll let her tell her story really quick here. But, uh, we covered it in the last two episodes. 
But I think it's important because, like I said, the church is still practicing these polygamy rites. I'm going to let Christy Money tell her story. Okay. I'm going to spend a few minutes sharing my research on modern implications of polygamy for widows versus widowers, showing they're treated unequally. This follows a pattern I noticed from the historical behavior and statements of general authorities, specifically that with just two exceptions, everyone that were sealed to second wives after they were widowered, their second wives were never married women. And this is because LDS women can't be sealed to more than one man, but an LDS man can be sealed to multiple women. Let me start with some dates. I looked up all the general authorities since 1908, whose first wives died and they remarried. With the exception of Howard W. Hunter, who was sealed to a second wife who was divorced, but she'd never been sealed before, and a 70s widower who married a widow for time only by Spencer W. Kimball himself because Kimball called him on a mission and insisted that he needed a wife. All others married never married women. And so I think the, the first example is a really interesting one. It's Joseph Fielding Smith. His first wife, Emily Shirtliff, died in 1908. He was 33 and an assistant church historian at the time. He was sealed eight months later to Ethel Reynolds, who was 19, the daughter of a prominent LDS church leader, George Reynolds. His second wife died in 1937, and he was apostle by that time. And he was sealed eight months later again to Jessie Ella Evans, who was 36 years old. He was 62. She was a famous singer who had joined the Motab at 16. She had never married, and she met the prof, uh, well, he was an apostle at the time, um, because Ethel, his second wife, had asked that she sing at her funeral. And then eight months later, they got married. All right, second example, Harold B. Lee. While he was an apostle, his first wife died in 1962. He was sealed nine months later to Frida Joan Jensen, and she was a former Mission Companion's girlfriend who had never married. All right, last one is um, Ronald Pullman. He's a 70. Um, he was sealed three years after his wife died in 1982 to Ann Osborne, a never-married woman and medical doctor, professor of radiology at the U, and had served as a member of the Sunday School General Board. In 1977, she had written an article for the Ensign, actually, about being single in the church. All right, let's uh, focus on our three current apostles. In, um, so here's another date, 2006. This is Russell M. Nelson. That's when he was sealed to a second wife, Wendy Watson, a sex therapist specializing in um, geriatrics, 14 months after his first wife died. He was 82, she was 56. All right, next is L. Tom Perry. In 1976, he was sealed to Barbara Dayton. It's less than two years after his first wife, Virginia, died. I couldn't find when Barbara's birthday was, but in their pictures, um, she looks significantly younger than him. Um, she was also the great-granddaughter of the prophet John Taylor. Then third is Dallin H. Oaks, who was sealed to Kristen McCain in 2000 two years after his first wife, June, died. And Kristen was in her early 50s, and Oaks was 68. Okay, and then there were three more 70s widowers who were sealed to never-married women. And, of course, there are notable widowers, like Richard G. Scott comes to mind, but there have been others who never married again when their first wives died, which shows they can choose not to marry, even under, from what I've heard from multiple sources, a lot of pressure to remarry. 
but everyone else were sealed to never married or um, virgins, as Section 132 specifically stipulates as the type of polygamous wife that is approved. Speaking of 132, I was rereading the seminary lesson on um, DNC 132 with a brand new material from the church essay on Nauvoo polygamy. And as I record this, it's being taught to youth 14 and 18. And when I first heard from seminary teachers this would be coming, I wrote an op-ed encouraging leaders to think critically about whether or not they should bear testimony that they know polygamy was God's will and that Joseph was just an obedient servant like the lesson instructs them to. Because if they, if they felt even a little ambivalent about that, I argue they have the moral obligation not to obey and instead teach it in a way that rings true to their inner moral compass. Fair Mormon reacted pretty strongly to my op-ed and mischaracterized my intent, and I can see why they'd want to shoot the messenger, because in addition to other problematic parts of the seminary lesson, there's, um, there's this little nugget for youth. Uh, quote, Elder Dallin H. Oaks, who remarried after his first wife died, explained in an interview that on the subject of the eternal nature of marriage, we know some things and we do not know other things. And then here's Alex's quote. There are a lot of people that live in this earth and have been married to more than one person. Sometimes those marriages have ended with death. Sometimes they've ended with divorce. What does the next life mean to them in relation to a covenant they once made? For people who live in the belief, as I do, that marriage relations can be for eternity, then you must say, what will life be in the next life when you're married to more than one wife for eternity? I have to say I don't know. But I know that I've made those covenants. And I believe... If I'm true to the covenants, that the blessing that's anticipated here will be realized in the next life. So to me, Oaks's I don't know, but I know, sounds like a carefully worded denial, like the essay said, about what Joseph made when he said he wasn't practicing spiritual wifery or didn't have more than one wife, when he really had 30 plus. Um, that statement from Oaks made me really uncomfortable, to be honest. And... Um, also, shortly after Russell M. Nelson was sealed to his second wife, he bore testimony in General Conference that he was grateful for Temple Covenants because he believes he will be with both women for eternity after he dies. So I'm, I'm taking both Oaks and Nelson at their word, and that both take comfort in their belief that they'll be sealed to both of their wives. What saddens me is that if they were women, they would not be able to have those comforting beliefs because widows cannot be sealed to their second husbands in the temple. It needs to be a civil ceremony for widows till death do us part. The Nauvoo Polygamy Church essay confirmed that policy by saying, quote, consistent with Joseph Smith's teachings, the church permits a man whose wife has died to be, see to be sealed to another woman, uh, woman when he remarries. And then it leaves out the fact that a woman cannot do that by jumping straight to the newer policy that deceased men and women can have their work done in the temple for them and be sealed to everyone they were married to. So it sounds equal, but it's not, because widows can only be sealed to their second or third husbands once she's dead. And that's little comfort to a widow in this life, especially when she finds out if she were a man, she could go to the temple with her second spouse, no problem. In the polygamy essay, and occasionally in press statements, the church will respond with, well, we don't know, don't speculate about polygamy being celestial law. But is it really speculation when we notice how widows can't be sealed to more than one man in a temple, but oh... A widower can? This has serious implications for widows that I'm hoping is simply a case of that the apostles haven't thought about it yet, because as men and widowers themselves, it's never been something they've had to think about. If a woman is widowed young, her dating prospects for a Mormon guy are severely limited because they can't get married in the temple, and that's what we're taught since we're young, right? You know, to not settle for anything less than a temple marriage. 
unless she nullifies her sealing to her first husband, which, as you can imagine, would be a very horrible decision to force a young widow to make. And just imagine if she had children, too. If she were a man, she wouldn't have to make that decision. Even if a woman is widowed later in life, I imagine she, too, would find comfort in being sealed to her second husband and know that she can be with him forever, too. But she can't, because she's a woman. The only loophole available to her is she would have to beg her children to do the sealing for her once she's already dead. That's assuming she has LDS children who can or would be interested in even doing that for her. And besides, the whole point of rituals like the sealing ceremony is to give people peace and comfort and meaning in this life for the next. What good is it if a living widow can't have that meaningful experience in the temple with her second husband? Why can a man have the peace and joy that the ceremony brings, but a woman can't? How can we not speculate when this is current policy? Which is why I imagine the apostles get asked this question a lot. In fact, I was in the room with Elder Holland when he was giving a Q&A on Harvard campus in 2007. I was engaged and thinking a lot about polygamy, as we do. And a woman asked him, are we going to practice polygamy again in the celestial kingdom? I was going to ask the same thing. And his answer was, I don't know. And my heart sank, just like that. Um, just like the Elder Oaks' statement. But then he said, But I do know God wouldn't force us to do anything we don't want to do, so we need to trust him. Everything will turn out for our good. I know that he was trying, but that didn't make me feel much better, because I've gotten the don't-worry-about-it response before, and from many well-meaning people in my life, saying I shouldn't worry about it, because when I die, we'll all be perfected, and we won't have jealousy or selfishness, so of course I won't feel forced when it's time to live the law of polygamy. I'll be glad to do it. But that never brought me comfort. Polygamy's vestiges inflict psychological pain on Mormon women today, and it floors me that the church essay and the seminary lesson have come out defending it in our history as God commanded, but I don't think it came from God at all. And I think one of the most harmful aspects of it today is that widows cannot go to the temple with their second husbands to be sealed for eternity unless they cancel their sealing to their first husband. But a widower can take a second wife to be temple married, no problem. And it not only affects widows, a friend of mine, as a teenager, was propositioned by a married man who begged her not to get married, but instead save herself to be his second wife someday. Whether in the next life or if his wife died, he didn't uh, specify. Uh, she needed to process his proposal with a therapist, who turned him into his bishop, and he got a slap on the wrist. He now works for the church, by the way. My position is, and I'm biased, but I'm concerned that polygamy, which is pure patriarchy, in my opinion, will, will never fully be excised from our doctrine and policies until women are ordained and at the highest levels of decision-making. Female apostles will be able to understand its harm in ways male apostles can't, since they're only human. The essay on the priesthood and the temple ban for black members before 1978 admitted that the doctrine was racist and has been disavowed. And I cannot wait for the day that women are ordained. And years later, the church publishes an essay that the female priesthood ban and polygamy by it were influenced by patriarchy and sexism of the surrounding culture. Writing in 1897, LDS Apostle Charles W. Penrose stated, quote, In the case of a man marrying a wife in the everlasting covenant who dies while he continues in the flesh and marries another by the same divine law, each wife will come forth in her order and enter with him into his glory. 
Former Utah Senator Jake Garn was reluctant to remarry following the death of his first wife, Hazel, in 1976, but he soon realized that he could not be both a father and a mother to his children. So when he began dating Kathleen Brewerton, who would become his second wife, questions arose about how his first wife would feel should she become sealed to a second wife. The couple took their questions to President Spencer W. Kimball. He said he did not know exactly how these relationships will be worked out, but he did know that through the faithfulness, all will be well and they would have much joy. Brother Garn later recalled that Kathleen told him that she was afraid of offending Hazel. President Kimball's demeanor seemed to change. From being somewhat hesitant to his earlier answers, he now became sure and spoke with firmness. He looked right at Kathleen, and with a tear forming in his eye, he said, quote, I do know this. You have nothing to worry about. Not only will she accept you, she will put her arms around you and thank you for raising her children. And this comes from Jake Garn, Why I Believe in 1992. Family members with blended families really have something sort of funky to sort out in the next life. Especially when a woman is divorced and sealed, sealed and then divorced, has children with a man, and then goes and, you know, marries to someone else. Sealing practices, like I said earlier, cause so much pain and so much heartache for so many people. It is so messy. Um, and I'm going to talk about that next because this is such an important factor. This, this doctrine, the sealing principle that no one has really figured out really seeps into the culture. And I want you to hear the experiences of average Mormons and how polygamy has permeated their consciousness. And then remember that this same attitude possibly is amplified in what church leaders who have all been um, in direct contact in some way with polygamy feel. I'm going to share just a handful of heartbreaking stories from folks that have been affected in the church. One woman, I put a call out for these stories, and one woman said, quote, The specter of polygamy runs deep through the way single women are treated in the church. Because there's on some level a deep unconscious fear among the membership that polygamy may come back someday, single women are seen as a threat to every marriage by our mere existence. I can't count the number of times that I've had an innocent conversation, usually work-related, with a man at church where his wife will glare daggers at me for daring to talk to her man, end quote. This is patriarchy, right? This is what we talk about in Mormon feminism all the time, that patriarchy pits women against women. The resources are so small, so scarce, power is so hard to obtain that you can only get it through a man, so you really have to pick each other apart to get it. Another person told me this story, quote, When I'm still to my husband, I will be the second wife, getting my first wife status taken away. When I was still to my ex-husband, stuck for eternity with a woman I can't even stand to look at, and I'm sure she feels the same way. End quote. Now I'm going to let Cami uh, Ashby tell her story here. Hi, this is Cami. My experiences with how polygamy has affected my life, not just my information on history with church. I am from a long line on both sides of my family of pioneers. One of my great-grandmothers, she lived in the Orderville in Utah and lived the United Order with her family. I have been so blessed to have her diary. I've been able to read so much about her and her life since I was a little girl. And in there, you know, she definitely talked about polygamy. I'm 45 years old, growing up as a teenager in the 80s and a preteen in the 70s. There was a lot more talk about polygamy 
and the information about it, it was pretty much well known that polygamy not only was something that was practiced in our history, but that it was expected um, in the next life if you were to be approved of having a family forever. So one way that it affected my life was my stepfather um, used a lot of language from the scriptures, uh, specifically Doctrine and Covenants, as well as the known ways that polygamy was practiced by our pioneers in the church. He would use that to persuade me and my other sister that he had the right as a priesthood holder to claim us as part of his plural wives in the next life. And he said that, you know, he didn't expect us to wait for him in this life. It was okay to get married, but that as a priesthood holder, he had claimed us first. And it would all be ironed out in the next life and not to worry about it, but that he wanted us to know. And I remember that even in the scriptures, the things that are taught about polygamy, it made the woman's power in polygamy very minuscule. Uh, for instance, in Doctrine and Covenants 132, it says, if any man espouse, oh, sorry, verse 61, if any man espouse a virgin and desire to espouse another, and the first give her consent, and if he espouse the second, and have vowed to no other man, then he is justified. He cannot commit adultery, for they are given unto him. Never does it talk about what the woman wants. If the woman or the virgin wants to be married to him, and although it says that his wife has to give, you know, the first has to give her approval, it was never practiced that way, especially with Emma, ever. And again, growing up outside of Utah, I knew a lot about polygamy as part of our history because that was brought up a lot when anti-Mormons would come at us with their information, which, you know, come to find out at, 40, at the age of 45 that they were correct in all the information they'd ever given me. Um, so... Just reading in the scriptures and knowing how things were done behind Emma's back that, you know, Joseph's wives were all spread out between two or three men that were high up in the church after Joseph was killed. And, you know, also reading the history and how every, every girl that Emma fostered and became a foster mother to, Joseph married behind their back. It felt very much like what was happening in my house. And my stepfather was a historian about the church. He had done a lot of history reading to understand it. So he knew. And just following Joseph Smith's example, I, it must have made it okay for him to take his stepdaughters as plural wives. It just felt like they were given. And a, a, not just felt like it was spoken that way in the scriptures and, and handled that way. So when he told me that, I really felt like there was nothing to back up my own personal power in this. And that the Lord was just going to wait until I felt more Christ-like and had gotten over my um, earthly feelings of not wanting to be a plural wife or not wanting to um, have my husband have a plural wife, but that I would just be held back in my progression until I finally gave over to that. That affected me a lot um, as I grew up and had a family of my own. By the time I was married, I mean, I knew that my stepfather was just loony and that, that that wasn't something that he could do. However, I did still know 
that polygamy was very much practiced in the temple because men could be sealed to more than one wife. So when polygamy ever did get brought up in Sunday school or whatnot, as I was growing up with a family of my own, depending upon this topic, sometimes polygamy will come up and that, you know, we don't understand it all, but it will be reinstated once, you know, in the next life. And so as a woman, as a wife, I knew that this would eventually be something I had to submit to in order to progress in my own personal progression. So I would try to think of myself in that position in a very happy way. I would I would mold things in my mind, in my future, to see myself as part of a collective of wives rather than an individual. And it really smacked in the face of individual worth that I was brought up in young women's. That my individual worth was really the worth of the collective and not me, Cammy, me, my own feelings about it. When I started discovering that my ex had cheated on me, I was prepared to accept it, to accept it and move on because mentally I had been prepared to share my husband anyways. And supposedly he repented and so forth, but as time went on, I would find out more and more and more indiscretions. And it was very traumatizing every single time, obviously, what added to the trauma was this paradigm I had that perhaps Heavenly Father was preparing me to be a plural wife. And I felt I needed to stay in the marriage for a myriad of reasons that I don't regret at this time. Um, I, I don't think I ever will because there was a lot of things that I was able to grow in. But one thing that hampered me as a person is that I just stuffed more and more feelings down that I had to be loyal to this celestial family and that this was something that women had to put up with forever because men are more wicked than women. It's just something you hear about, which is why the church says we have to have polygamy because there's not going to be as many men there. And I had finally gotten to the point where I just figured, well, he is not living righteously and so I'm just going to do the best I can and stay true to my covenants. I had just come to the conclusion that if I was really good and um, kept my covenants that in the next life Heavenly Father would give me probably as a plural wife but he would give me to somebody who absolutely adored and loved me and that this had prepared me to to deal with the fact that I would have to share a wonderful husband in the next life. And I was very grateful that I went through my faith crisis and transition before I walked away from this marriage that wasn't working. Because by going through that, you know, a year before that had happened, I would have thought I would have crumbled into a heap and never survived it. But after going through a faith transition and, and thinking of what if this wasn't all true or what if there was, you know, something different, something else. When I finally went through and let go of the marriage that just wasn't working, I just had this overwhelming peace that I would never, ever have to sacrifice my personal worth as an individual in order to help the collective or a marriage or anything else that I could actually put my individual worth first and that I didn't have to settle for anything less than that ever 
and it just brought me so much peace and I I'm single I'm happy and I'm so happy that I know that I never have to submit to anything like that that would make my skin crawl that I could just find happiness for me in my own context so that was how polygamy had influenced my life for the last 45 years and I'm very very happy that it doesn't have to influence my life from now on I hope that women in this uh, church can find their individual power past polygamy and see themselves as amazing individuals amazing human beings who have so much potential and to tap into that potential and not let this shroud of polygamy dictate anything that they choose in their life. So that is my thought. Thank you. This doesn't just affect women. This affects men. I talked to someone who said that he sees this in U.S. culture all the time. Guys feel that they have the right to get as many girls as they want. Yet uh, girls have to accept every guy and give him multiple chances if things don't work out. Guys are told that if things don't work out, there are so many girls out there, but girls are are expected to obsess over the same man for eternity. And there's and uh, I've actually heard terrible, horrible stories about missionaries in the MTC. You know, all these guys are in this dorm you know, they're 19, they're thinking about girls. And so how they justify it is they use polygamy to, to talk about how many wives they're going to have. And they pick out the sister missionaries of the MTC who they're going to have sealed to them because they know they're they're never going to get married. And I have so many, I had so many stories talk about infertility, too many to um, account for. And Christy Money, who we just heard earlier, talks about this a little bit, but she struggled with this as well. If your sole purpose is to create seed as a woman and you can't in this life, it messes you up. And there are so many stories of Mormon fundamentalist women who struggle with this. And it's sort of this double-edged sword because polygamy is used as a justification like, oh, well, you can't have kids. You'll become a, you know, a plural wife and raise one of your sister wife's kids. And you sort of see this sort of artificial struggle um, on TLC's sister wife. I say artificial not to discount their actual real struggle, but I think a lot of it is not an accurate. We're not getting the full story is all I'm saying. This idea in popular culture that women are more righteous than men comes from this idea that there are going to be more women in heaven. This comes from the idea of saying that there's an excess of women. This is a justification of polygamy. So we really get this pedestalization of women from polygamy. This idea that women are more righteous you need more of them, and men are these lowly, craven beings. It's all from polygamy. I'm going to read another story from someone uh, that doesn't want their name used. She said, quote, I recently found out my husband was on dating sites, sending dirty pics to other women, sexting them, and making plans to hook up in real life. When I found out, as I was processing it all, I had the thought that if polygamy comes back, I would have to find a way to be okay with that behavior, because somehow it goes from infidelity and adultery to the highest form of marriage, all because some old dude said it was totes okay. I've never been okay with polygamy, but that was a real aha moment. There is a hundred percent no way polygamy is from God, from the God I worship, because there is actually no difference between polygamy and cheating. None, zero, zilch. And knowing the pain I have felt over the last few months, and knowing that our foremothers endured the same pain, but were being told it was what God wanted, it makes me want to light things on fire. 
starting with the temple, because all I see there is polygamy from initiatories to endowment to ceilings to sex anointing. So much rage, end quote. Another woman sent me this. She said, quote, my husband of 36 years suffers from sex addiction. I first found out when we had been married six years. He had been with prostitutes and came clean. We went to a counselor and worked with a well-meaning bishop. I was devastated, not wanting to tell anyone, knowing I would probably stay with him, made it really hard to bear alone. My bishop in one session with me asked how I felt about polygamy. What? I thought, does my life have to do with polygamy? I can't remember what I said, something to the fact that it would be different in the afterlife. You know, the usual line. He never really followed up with what he was thinking, but it got me to think. What he meant was, you really shouldn't be so shook up by this. You're going to have to get used to it at some time. My husband recovered for a few years and then fell back into it, got excommunicated, and has been clean for 16 years now. He holds a pretty important job in the ward. Use my story if you want, but no names. Thanks. End quote. This is a story from a man. Um, he said, polygamy helped make me into a misogynist I am still trying to recover from. I was thoroughly convinced that at some point it would come back and I would take another wife. I even looked at other women that way to some degree. It also helped emphasize a patriarchal view that led me to arguably be emotionally abusive to my own wife in our early years of marriage, something I deeply regret and look back on with shame. Thankfully, it was mild in the scheme of things and I was able to change, end quote. This is what I'm talking about. We cannot overstate the effect that this has teaching young boys from birth that they get to have multiple sexual partners and women that they save themselves for one man. I mean, it seems like something that that wouldn't be that big of a deal, but this is where we get missionaries in the MTC bragging about how many women they're going to get with and women in the MTC worried that they are never going to get married because they went on a mission. It permeates our psyche. It permeates our psyche so that women are so distrustful, so distrustful of other women in the ward. They can't trust single sisters. So distrustful that they look at their husband looking at porn as some sort of twisted form of polygamy. This doctrine affects us all. Men, women, children, all of us. Polygamy is in the LDS church. It's everywhere. We live it all every day, if not in our own heads, in an ironic way, we we are all polygamous in our hearts, just like Brigham Young wanted us to be. Julie D. Azevedo Hanks was talking about her um, work as a counselor, and she said that in psychotherapy, a lot of women, Mormon women, talk about uh, some of their concerns, and it relates back to this sort of patriarchal polygamy, that their youthfulness, attractiveness to men is really important to them. They have a lot of anxiety about this. A lot of single women are anxious to be married to a man. A lot of women are concerned about their husband's rank in the church hierarchy, because the higher, the better. A lot of women, she says, come in and are concerned about the number of children she bears for the husband. And a lot of them are concerned about if they disagree with their husband, that they're not submitting to them and his priesthood role. And I remember being scared of the same thing. You guys, it's 2015 and we are worried about this stuff that a, that a therapist in Utah has women coming into her office worried about these things. This is not okay. This is how we live polygamy every day. Before I end, you know, I'm ending quite passionate. I do want to read one thing that is sort of chilling to me, but I think, I think this is true. We see 
You've gotten 97 episodes of polygamy. I could do 97 more. The more that I dig, the deeper I get, the more I find out about polygamy. I'm finding crazy stuff. The FLDS church is breaking apart. Crazy stuff is happening. There's human trafficking. They're stealing children. They're teaching them secret codes so they can't be rescued by their parents. There are child labor infractions in other groups. There are all these independents that marry their daughters off or sleep with their own daughters. There are all these crazy things happening with polygamy that are terrible and awful. That is one face of polygamy. And the other face is in the hearts of every single Latter-day Saint that has to confront this doctrine, every single one. And it comes out in ways that I don't think have been healthy and productive. And a lot of that has to do with our Mormon shame and our Mormon secrecy. And so all of that we have to sit with and we have to live with. And I argue still, and I will argue till I'm blue in the face, that we have this this problem that we like to push off on Mormon fundamentalists. We say, oh, abuse and crime, it's so bad. None of that, none of it is going to get better. None of it. Until the LDS Church, as a people and as a leadership and as an institution, deals with this doctrine. Because we haven't dealt with it, we are complicit in the abuse that is happening. And those are strong words, but I 100% believe them. I've dealt with many anti-polygamy advocates that see dark stuff, and many of them are LDS, and they refuse to acknowledge that this has to do with the LDS church. It 100% does, and the abuse and the crime is not going to stop until the LDS church deals with this. So let's end with Bruce R. McConkie on page 578 in Mormon Doctrine. He says, quote, Obviously, the holy practice will commence again after the second coming of the Son of Man and the ushering in of the millennium. End quote. So, we live it today, and we're going to live it again, and we're going to live it again, and we're going to live it again. And this is the legacy of Mormon polygamy. I hope you enjoy the next episode with D. Michael Quinn. It's a great one. And since we're coming to the end of this podcast, you've endured to the end, you've endured it well. I'm going to leave you now with LDS leaders talking about what you can do to prepare for the end. A sort of a lighthearted way to end this, but also to help those outside of our faith familiarize themselves with the sort of doctrine that we um, value and appreciate in the LDS church. For nearly 6,000 years, God has held you, most of you, in reserve to make your appearance in the final days before the second coming of the Lord. God reserves spirits for this dispensation who would have the courage and the determination to face the world and all the powers of the evil one, and who would build up the Zion of our God fearless of all consequences." Unquote. Fear shall come upon all people, but you and I know that the Lord has prepared places of safety to which he is eager to guide us. God has saved for the final inning some of his strongest children who will help bear off the kingdom triumphantly. For you are the generation that must be prepared to meet your God. There has never been more expected of the faithful in such a short time, a short period, as there is of us. 
As the challenges around us increase, we must commit to do more to qualify for the companionship of the Holy Ghost. Casual prayer won't be enough. Reading a few verses of the scripture won't be enough. Doing the minimum of what the Lord asks of us won't be enough. This preparation must consist of more than just casual membership in the church. You must learn to be guided by personal revelation and the counsel of the living prophet so you will not be deceived. I know without question, my brothers and sisters, that God lives. I testify to you that this is his work. I testify as well that our Savior, Jesus Christ, is at the head of this church which bears his name. I know that the sweetest experience in all this life is to feel his promptings as he directs us in the furtherance of his work. We know not the day nor the hour of his coming, but of this you may feel assured. You stand close to the great day of the Lord. In his words of modern revelation, we say to you, Seek the face of the Lord always. You will live in the midst of economic, political, and spiritual instability. When you see these signs, unmistakable evidences that his coming is nigh, be not troubled, but stand in holy places and be not moved until the day of the Lord come.